Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demythifying, the podcast where two best friends talk mythology, go off on tangents, and hope to bring a little bit more forgotten magic to the world. So hi, Nina, and thank you for joining us. This is a really, really exciting interview for us because we love us some Ovid and we really like how you've rewritten him for a modern audience. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with classics or they find it really daunting, it's really accessible. So your book, Wake Up Siren, is a new take on the metamorphosis stories. So just thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And the cover, the cover is, is very interesting because it sort of takes little touches from all of the myths, I think, and kind of puts it into one big chimera type beast. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, the cover, the cover is really exciting. I think so too. It's, um, it was done by a, a tattoo artist in New York, actually. Um, and it sort of, to my mind, kind of takes, takes the Medusa myth and mm. sort of adds all of it. You know, at first it sort of started out just being snakes in the hair. Um, and then it was sort of additional additional creatures and, and natural forces. I think it's absolutely stunning. Thanks. And it's quite striking with the green and the blue. Yeah. And then the yellow eyes. It's very, mm-hmm. very striking. Before we start asking questions about the book, could you tell our listeners about yourself? Sure. I graduated from college and, and pretty promptly got a uh, job at a newspaper. Uh, and so worked there as a journalist for about eight years um, and then decided I didn't want to be in front of a computer screen anymore and so quit my job and you know it's sort of a a weird sort of twist of fate and luck and happenstance got a job as a carpenter um, which I had no experience in at all Um, and so for nine years worked as a carpenter doing kitchen renovations and building bookcases and decks and redoing bathrooms and building additions and stuff. And that was, yeah, so almost a decade doing that um, and sort of writing all the while doing sort of freelancing. Um, And my first book was uh, a book about leaving journalism and learning the carpentry trade called Hammerhead. And that came out in 2015. When I stopped the renovation work, the carpentry work, that was sort of when Wake Siren took off. I wrote that book very quickly. And then since then, wrote another book, uh, a short essay called Summer Solstice. Um, And so I'm mostly sort of writing now. I work for the Boston Globe, the newspaper here in Boston, writing about um, sort of literary news of the region. And that's sort of been my my strange sort of career trajectory with sort of writing being the the foundation through it all. I was not expecting Carpenter. Yeah, (laughs) I wasn't either. (laughs) That must be handy, though, for like just doing stuff at home. Totally. It's, I mean, it's skills, you know, if someone had said like, please, could you build a wall? It would have been the same sort of thing. If someone were to say like, please, could you do a hip replacement? You know, I would just have like no idea. Um, But in terms, I mean, it just turns out that it's, it's, it's all very accessible knowledge, you know, I mean, you just sort of have to have the right tools and someone sort of showing you how it all fits together. Um, So I haven't been doing the renovation work as much, but I have been carving a lot of spoons, which is an extremely fun uh, way to sort of put my brain in my hands still. But do you have a lathe? I do not, no. I've never used a lathe actually. Do you? Uh, no, but I, it's really random. I work in a warehouse and we put on events and yeah. I used to work in an audio warehouse and there was a guy that I worked very closely with who just decided one day that he was gonna buy a lathe, put it in the maintenance part of our warehouse 
and would just make like uh, bowls. He made a bowls, lot of bowls. Yeah. And he made a lot of like tool handles and stuff. And it was always interesting. I never touched it because I was always a bit like, I don't want to cut my hand off, but it looks really cool. They seem like very serious tools. I've never, I've been curious about it, but I've never, I've never used them. The the spoons that I do are just with like, just a tiny little blade, you know, very, like very low tech. I'm still impressed. I can just about put together Ikea flat pack furniture. (laughs) That's like my level of of stuff. That's where I was too. I mean, it's exactly where I started too, really truly knowing nothing. But I mean, even Ikea stuff can be tricky sometimes. That's true. So other than Ovid, which I'm assuming that you like, considering you wrote this, what kind of books do you like to read? It varies. Um, I've been reading recently an essayist and translator named Elliot Weinberger, and he's been really um, sort of blowing my mind about what an essay can be. I tend to read a lot of poetry, especially when I'm when I'm writing. I was reading recently uh, translations of Virgil's Eclogues by a poet, a young poet named Nate Klug, K-L-U-G. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. There's a there's a a, a poet named Inger Christensen who I've been really loving. So it sort of varies. I mean, it sort of bounces around between fiction and nonfiction, uh, essays, poetry. Have you guys been reading anything you like? Well, other than Wake's Iron, you mean? <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> Yeah, we've been reading quite a bit of fantasy for mm. for this podcast and there was someone whose episode came out today actually and she'd mixed a lot of mythology with fantasy, which was cool. quite interesting. That was cool. called God Killer by Hannah Kana. Cool. I was just talking to Charlotte earlier saying I would really like to read some poetry. So I am going to check out what you've been reading and see cool. what it's like. Excellent. I used to study it like back in college. When oh, I- really? But I haven't touched poetry for years. So I feel now like I want to just get back into it a little bit. Yeah, it's sort of, for, especially when I'm running, it sort of lights up my lights up my mind in the sense of like what what language can do, you know, sort of taking it in different different directions. Um, so I, I use it to sort of, I don't know, lightning bolt my 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 thoughts. What do you think modern audiences can learn from ancient texts such as Ovid or Virgil? I think to me, what's so striking when I was when I was really revisiting Ovid as I was writing this book and any of these texts is is how how relevant and alive they seem right now. You know, it's 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 sort of it's it's almost shocking how familiar it all feels Uh, in some ways. It's amazing. Wow. Like the human scene is not that much changed. And in some ways it's like, oh, God, like the human scene has not changed, you know. And I think for me with Ovid, like it is so. It's such a rich, sensual text, you know, and these stories that I think what was what was surprising to me, too, is that reading through it's it's sort of you'll be reading along and it's a story that you sort of don't know that, you know, you'll come upon it and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar and had no idea that that was sort of, oh, yeah, of course, this is, you know these characters, this situation. And I think that it's, it's, it's a lot of these things are sort of, you know, imprinted in us in an, in an early way by the stories we're told as kids um, in our different sort of, you know, confrontations with myth and storytelling. So I think, I mean, I think primarily it really is how relevant and, and sort of, I don't know, yeah, like contemporary they still seem. And how did this book come about? Did you start with a particular story that you thought, hmm, I wonder if I could change that and twist it or and go from there or did you have the idea to to give the woman voices first or yeah yeah that's a good question so when I was working on my first book about which was a true a true book about leaving my my journalism job um to learn carpentry 
I was thinking like, I want to be reading something that has nothing to do with the, the, the writing I'm trying to do. I don't want to read novels. I don't want to read memoir. Um, and so I had never, if I'd read Ovid in school, it had been in high school and it was just a story or two. And so I was like, oh, good, perfect. Like a 12,000 line poem. This will be perfect. This won't inflect what I'm trying to do at all. And it actually ended up being the sort of backbone of that book as well in, in a much different way in the sense of sort of the idea of change, the idea of one thing becoming something else, thinking about it in terms of a tree, becoming a board, becoming a bookcase, and also thinking about it like going from one thing, like understanding myself, like I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, like, okay, now I'm, now I'm a carpenter. And so in a surface way, it sort of became the driving force. After I was done that work, I was, I was sort of just between books, reading, you know, various things. And I picked up The Metamorphosis one afternoon and I read the story of, of Callisto. And I was like, huh, what would it be like to sort of just rewrite from that perspective? You know, sort of almost as a way to get my writing muscles back into shape. And I sat down and I did it. And it, the first line, I am a bear, I live in the sky, came very quickly. And it, it sort of was just like, from the start, sort of this lit up feeling. And I thought, all right, cool, that, that felt good. I'll try another one. And then I did another, and then it just sort of like took off. And I wrote the book very, very quickly. It took, it took about three months to write. Um, I say that only because the first book I wrote took, took years and draft after draft after draft. And this one, I sort of almost felt like it was sort of like I stepped aside and it just sort of came out. So that's, that's sort of how it got, got its start. I really like that with this and with the metamorphoses you can read it in one go or you can dip in and out into individual stories depending on what you fancy which was your favorite story to rewrite you must have one yeah that's it's funny I had I was thinking about this you know and the story of Thetis I had written and I was it just like it just wasn't hitting I just felt like this isn't right this isn't this isn't landing the way I want it to land this isn't feeling sort of like it doesn't have the verve I want it to have and I redid that one and when working on that ended up being like the biggest pleasure uh Thetis changes into I think a hundred different sort of animals and creatures and just sort of it's one of the more experimental ones in the book and so that one that one was just an absolute delight I had sort of the most fun with that and I also I think I was less familiar with her myth and I think getting more familiar with that story also was also was sort of a cool aspect of it since you brought up the story of of Thetis I think we should sort of talk about it a bit more first of all when I became familiar with the story about how she ended up being married and she changed into all these different things I thought oh it's like some sort of competition he has to win her mm. not quite realizing how sinister it actually was and then I read more and it's like okay maybe this wasn't like a fun challenge yeah. maybe this is actually quite dark yeah and the way that you've written her you can really really feel this sort of desperation in each shape change that she doesn't want to be violated and then the resignation and defeat. So was that hard to write? You know, it's interesting. I mean, so there's, there is desperation um, and there's this kind of protective aspect of it, you know, changing these shapes, these shapes. So she's not sort of violated. She's not raped. And so I, I think of it as, I also think of it as quite powerful, you know, that there, there is like, she is doing these things where she is, you know, tapping into something in herself that is able to sort of for for as long as she possibly can avoid this 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 violence and this violation so i i sort of i sort of understood it 
as as kind of a a power and also too I mean I think that it is it's like there's a sort of a sadness to it too when finally she is like there's this this moment where it's where she actually is impregnated finally and it's and it's just like that transformation is devastating for her you know this one that she did not choose for herself that sort of sadness um and so there is darkness in it but I think there I don't know like that one for me feels like there's a power at the heart of it I think that was for me one of the most powerful Mm. pieces in Mm. the in the whole book but I found the way that she you wrote her changing was kind of beautiful as well like the descriptions of the different sort of animals that she turned into like raccoon burly masquerading night beast small palms grasp the way we all do to vulture wide-winged eyes aim towards rots towards the splay of viscera viscera on the sand Riding thermals between infinity and death. I think you pronounce it visceral. Yeah, visceral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, good. Just like to read a little bit. And it's just, it's written so beautifully that Thanks. I kind of love it, even though it's kind of a sad story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, I mean, that's, that's a great compliment. You know, that there is, there can still be this sort of, you know, this, this beauty within the sort of the, the darkness and the sadness. Which was the hardest story for you to write? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it was definitely the Procne and Philomela story, which Mm. is the the longest in the book. It's the sort of centerpiece of the book. It actually sort of lands in the center of the book. In in the Ovid, I think of it as the, it's it's sort of the most brutal or one of the most brutal in in the Metamorphosis. And this was a story where I finished and, and really was just like depleted. You know, I was just sort of everything was out of me. And because it is, I mean, it's it's horrifically violent. There's, you know, a, a young girl has, she's raped, her tongue is cut out, a baby is killed. I mean, on and on of just sort of disgusting brutality. And, you know, what was funny was that, I mean, gosh, like I sort of finished writing, you know, the whole book and sent it off to my agent, the book sold, blah, blah, blah. So when I got the sort of initial round of edits, back I hadn't reread it I had done a spell check and just sort of sent it off and rereading it I had there was a lot of it that I just like didn't remember writing you know that it was again like I said sort of it sort of came from somewhere else and so rereading it was quite challenging especially that that section because it was just so just like yeah horrific uh so that one for sure was the was the hardest I saw a sort of performance of the metamorphic metamorphoses in London which for Mm. the most part wasn't very good but they did tackle that story and the person kind of representing that ate peaches and kind of let peach bits of peach and peach juice just kind of dribble from their chin and that I found powerful most of the performance I hated but that bit and how they did that story was powerful yeah yeah that's I think there have been so many sort of like almost you know frightening uh interpretations of that of that particular story I think it does kind of it kind of grabs you you know I mean it's it's inescapably you know terrifying and sort of uh, you know getting at the heart of I don't know a lot of our sort of darkest aspects of humanity yeah that's I mean that's very easy to picture that sort of peach juice dribbling down that's horrible and amazing and it's also meant to be you know her brother-in-law it's meant to be someone who essentially looks after her exactly why do you think there's so much violence in these stories, in in Ovid's stories? A lot 
of violence against women and in yours you can feel a lot of anger woven throughout as well as other emotions but why do why do you think that is well in terms of the anger you know there's a there's a poet I named, I love named Mary Royful. Um, and she, she has this line, this amazing line, and I, I'm probably going to botch it, but it's something like, there is no anger without fear. And I really believe that's true. Um, I think at the heart of any, any anger is fear. And I think that in some ways, anger is an outlet for that fear. Anger is a way for that fear to be sort of, in some ways, mastered and for there to be sort of change to rise out of it. I, I think that, you know, I mean, why was there, it's, it's a tough question. Like, why was there so much violence in Ovid? Why is there so much violence against women, period? You know, I mean, that's in some ways, that's just like kind of a, that's just sort of like a truth of our society and has been and, and probably will continue to, to be. And, and I don't say that in a cynical way. I think it's just, I mean, this is, this is sort of, this is just the fact of the matter. Things have gotten better and also things have not gotten better. Um, so I think, again, this is in some ways like, you think like, wow, gosh, Ovid, this is, there's so much rape, there's so much violence. And I think that like those same stories could be told right now. You know, the power structures are such that um, it is shifting, but in some ways these stories are still, can be still told exactly, exactly in the same way right now. I think Um, that hits especially hard for us being British with some of the shocking stories have been coming out in the press recently about like things with police officers just raping and abusing women yep. and it's so sort of horrific so I think yep. actually for us to read this now when this is happening it's kind of we can really feel that anger yeah yeah and it's you know I mean anger is not I mean it's not it's not a comfortable it's not a comfortable feeling obviously you know it's horrible to feel angry it's horrible to feel even more so rage because that can be sort of frightening because it feels a little bit incohate and out of control um and then there's also, it's sort of, it can be motivating, like, you know, taking that anger and sort of saying like, this is not right. This is not correct. This cannot happen this way. Um, and how do you, how do you channel that? How do you channel that towards making some sort of change, either in your own small life, talking with the people close to you in a bigger way? You know, how do you, how do you outlet it in a way that's sort of constructive, I think is, a, I don't know, for me, a big question. Yeah, and I think also as women or maybe not even women, people from the LGBT community, anger is seen as a bad thing and people are are dissuaded from from being angry or for showing their anger and for showing their emotions. And the women in your book go through some horrific things. They they have a right to be to be angry Mm -hmm. about what happens to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that like there is, I think that, you know, whether you're thinking on a personal scale, you know, sort of regardless of what you've been through in your life or in sort of a societal or cultural scale, I think that like, there is that, that right that all of us have, I think, to be angry. Which of these stories do you think will surprise people the most? Uh, let me think. Um, I mean, I guess it, it sort of is a question whether, you know, I guess for me reading through the, the metamorphosis, like the, the surprise is either like, oh, I've never heard of this figure before. I've never heard this myth. Um, so there's surprise in that, or there's sort of surprise in, you know, this is, a, this is a myth that I'm so familiar with and it's told in a way that I didn't expect. I think the one that's kind of most altered is the, um, the Eurydice and Orpheus story, which is the, the closing myth uh, in the book. Um, 
that's the one that sort of, I, I guess maybe I took the most liberty liberties with. I don't know, is there one that you felt most surprised with? Yeah, I'm trying to find, it was Mirror. I was really, uh, right, yeah. I was surprised <laughs> because obviously we know these stories and we know them from the perspective of either an outsider telling the story or from the male perspective mm-hmm. so I found it very interesting a little bit uncomfortable but super quite... uncomfortable <laughs> yeah well yeah very uncomfortable <laughs> but I also liked the way you did it because obviously she doesn't want to feel this way mm-hmm. but she does want mm-hmm. she does feel this way but she doesn't want to feel this way yeah so the mirror story I mean just quickly I mean because in case I you know that wouldn't if you had said mirror to me I probably wouldn't have I would have need my memory jog Mira is um she she falls in love and desires her father and ends up seducing him and sort of having having sex with him multiple multiple times until he sort of figures it out and and kind of banishes her um and she ends up gets pregnant with him um and her son from that uh incestuous love is Oh no, I can't believe I'm Adonis. Blinded. Adonis, of course. Um, thank you. Um, and and so the story in, in Wake Siren is um it's sort of told as though Mira is in kind of a, a like a, a, a psychiatrist's office, as though she's sort of with her her therapist kind of talking through this this kind of uh, you know, this you know, perverse desire that she has. So we our surprising stories are different then. So which was yours? Scylla. Ah, uh-huh. And I think that's because you told some of it. The bits between Galatea and Polyphemus were done through emails. Mm. And so it just felt so modern. And you see it. Like I go on Facebook, I go on Instagram, and I see screenshots totally. of women who've had exactly conversations like this. I've had conversations or interactions with men, not as bad as this. Mm-hmm. but where they expect you to be a certain way and then when you don't give them the attention in either the way or in the time that they want they get like this yeah and so yep. reading it, it was like shit I can if I can relate to anything in this yeah I can relate to this the most because it's yep. so modern yeah yeah thanks that's I mean that's that's I'm 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 gratified to hear that um and I think that that's, I think that the fact that the fact that that is so familiar to people, you know, the fact that that does feel like, oh yeah, I've seen that. Like I've, I've, that I've either seen it, I've had that happen. Like, um, you know, I mean, it, it's like, ah, yeah, I guess, you know, in that sort of way of just sort of holding up a mirror, you know, and sort of saying like, this is how it looks, you know, like this is how it can be. And I think it's, it's really common to feel like, oh, well, what, well, what happened wasn't that bad. It wasn't that right. bad. So I yeah. don't, it, it did scare me, but it wasn't that bad. It could have been worse. And I think that's a very, very common feeling for a lot of women, a lot of, you know, a lot of people have had, they go, well, it, it could have been worse, even though this person was com- clearly pushing boundaries, clearly yeah, overstepping. Yep, you're absolutely right. And I think that, I think there is that kind of, that second guessing of like, oh, you know, like maybe it was my fault. Maybe like, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I'm overreacting. Um, That sort of like, and then there's that kind of deeper in quieter voice saying like, no, actually that was really bad. That was really awful. Um, And that, and that we're sort of trained, I think in some ways to, to quiet that voice and to, 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 uh, second guess and to say like 
gosh, what did I do to provoke this? What, how did I do this wrong? Instead of saying like, wow, what you have done is completely fucked up. What you have done is absolutely wrong. Like, uh, and I have every right to be frightened. And like th that little voice that we're sort of quieting, like, you know, that scared voice, that sort of, uh, you know, turned upside down voice can have, I don't know, giving that, that, that sort of space for it to be a little louder and room for those voices to come up and sort of say like, yeah, wow, shoot, that was not okay. So do you think it's important to put that in the book, you know, so somebody can feel less alone? I mean, I, you know, it's funny, like, I mean, yes, I like, I guess I, I wouldn't, when I was working on the book, I wasn't thinking about stuff like that, you know, um, it was just kind of, I was just sort of writing and, and, and sort of letting these stories come out. I think though, with everything, with all the stories that are told the people, you know, people who come forward, men and women who sort of say like, this happened to me and going up against a great amount of scorn and ridicule and, and really negative repercussions often. Um, I think that like every time that happens, it opens the door a little wider for more people to be able to speak up, which I think is, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's extremely complicated, but overall I think, you know, being able to say like, okay, that thing that happened to me was terrible. And I am going to speak about it. I'm going to say, I'm going to say what it was. Um, and I think if Wake Siren, you know, like there is this kind of, it's this chorus of voices sort of telling their stories in this way. And I do think that that makes the space. It opens that door for women to say either, you know, out loud to themselves, to their friends, to sort of a wider world. This is, this is what happened. Is there a woman in Wake Siren that you wish that people knew more about? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think when I was sort of moving through the book, you know, I guess for me, the way I would sort of feel that would be less so an individual woman or an individual figure from the book. And it and sort of almost more what I said, the sort of chorus, the totality of the voices, um, the sort of the uprising of 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 these of these stories so it's less it's less I don't know there's less a sense for me of one that's like this is the the sort of iconic story um because I think all of them have their different sort of subtle and unsubtle powers and forces to them I don't know is there one that or one or two that you feel that that you'd want people to know more about one thing I found interesting about the Apollo and Daphne story mm. is that at the end of it, she feels kind of victorious, mm -hmm. it seemed. And that isn't something I'd considered mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. I, I love Apollo. I'm a bit of an Apollo fan, girl. Yeah, even yeah. though he does some <laughs> bad things. Yeah, he yeah. reminds me of the boys I used to fancy when I was a teenager. Uh -huh, just, sure. I don't know. <laughs> and like when I saw the the Bernini statue in Rome mm -hmm. of like of Apollo and Daphne like mm -hmm. I cried wow yeah but seeing her feel kind of victorious in it made me really happy uh -huh, so I would uh -huh. say I want people to know your version of the story mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I think you really brought something extra to it that cool. we didn't get from the the story of metamorphoses uh-huh uh-huh and it's ambiguous too you know as if you know it sort of ends like she's shaking her her sort of the, the crown of her leaves the, the crown of the tree and it's yeah there is this kind of both victorious and all I mean yeah there's this this, this this sort of ambiguity to it but there yeah that kind of 
that sense of not like I won, but that sense of like, I, I sort of took control of what this is, you know. But there was a story that we really both quite enjoyed, which was Semele. Mm. Yeah. Just, it was just a couple of the lines in it were, <laughs> were really quite funny. <laughs> like the way you sort of start it, fuck me like you fuck your wife. Oh, and then yeah, right, right. sort of at the end, oh, I realized, oh, of course, you do not fuck your wife. And then as fast as that, I was only Ash. Yeah. And again, it's quite a short story, but it just that I think in such a horrible situation brought some real lightheartedness mm-hmm. and kind of brought the whole thing back down to earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, you know, I mean, this it is with these with these sort of these ancient texts, there is this kind of, you know, it can feel inaccessible and it can feel you know, difficult in moments, it's hard, it's whatever, it can be challenging to read it, you know, this huge, huge poem and sort of keep track of everyone. But when you, when you sort of take it slowly, or you're not even that slowly, what, what it comes down to is like, very, these very familiar situations, you know, so I mean, like, that one, that one is it, that's a, that's a short, sort of punchy one. And like, that, it, that's been going on forever, those sorts of stories. Yeah. But thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad that one sort of felt like, because uh, that one felt risky to me in a way that it was done. That was also like a little bit of an experimental one. Oh, it made us both laugh. Yeah, good, good, awesome. Were there any stories that you had to refresh your memory on? And did you go down any sort of rabbit holes while you were researching the book? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there was a lot where I was I was moving through the metamorphosis sort of, you know, as as it's written. And there were many, many that I, you know, had no recollection of or were completely unfamiliar to me. I decided it felt early on, almost, I think, immediately to only interact with the text. I was, I was using Andal, Alan Mandelbaum's translation. And I, so I, I just was sticking with the Ovid um, and was very deliberate about not reading up about, you know, who these people were or especially not reading other interpretations. Um, I think it would have been very easy to like, yeah, totally drop into like so many different paths. Um, and I think that was, I was maybe, I don't know, maybe unconsciously wary of that because I think it would have been so easy to sort of say like, oh, how, how is this person, how is this figure, you know, evolved in their sort of conception through time? Um, how do we understand this person now versus then? How did people tell this story? So I was really, really deliberate in just totally sticking with with the Ovid and yeah I mean there was tons that I was you know I mean there still are ones that you know I have to sort of be like who who's that again um, what we did enjoy with these stories is that like you said we know them that we we can recall hearing them even if we don't know them fully mm-hmm. and you've given them fresh voices fresh ideas you know Rackney we knew that story mm-hmm. we've spoken about that story on our podcast and you've written it in her voice and you've done it in a way that makes us empathize with her pride and her bravado so obviously the story is she she claimed to be a better weaver than Minerva and whereas in Ovid so you know it's less the point of the story as more of an example of not offending Minerva and yeah I liked the bit I liked specifically is when Arachne says having money gives you options and those with options don't even realize that they have them mm-hmm. and I found it a really fascinating point of view so why did you pick this for her rather than you know a teenage arrogance like Ovid did sure I mean I I think that there's I think that the story of Arachne to me is sort of it's about you know 
coming up against power. And it is sort of in this teenage way, if you think of sort of a teenager sort of saying like, adults like you guys you guys are not you guys are not correct in this you know like i the way that i can do this is as good or better than you that that there's something i guess that the power structures you know a teenager particularly doesn't have that kind of it's sort of coming into their own sort of autonomous existence but still is under the control under the power of sort of you know parents and teachers and adults i think that you know, here Arachne obviously is sort of speaking up against a god, and so that's sort of in the, the sort of hubristic sense of that. But I think when you're thinking about class stuff, when you're thinking about the sort of societal power structures, um, I think that, I don't know, again, like not necessarily consciously, but I think that's what sort of was coming, coming up for me with Arachne's story, that it's sort of saying like, you know, people in power, you have no idea, like, what it is or people with money you don't you don't you don't think about what it is to to have to uh worry about not being able to afford your next loaf of bread you know or have to worry about paying rent um and that for us you know without 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 these resources without this money or power having to sort of focus our attention and energy on those things we can't focus for example on like the things that we might want to more, you know? Um, so I think that like, to me, it's less, yeah, it's less sort of, it's, I think of Arachne as like, there's a great confidence to her, you know, and sort of being able to say like, wow, I am not only as good, but better than this person. Um, and I want everyone to know about it. And I think there's, I mean, that's, that's like, there's a sort of a ferocity in a, in it. And, and like, a sort of clear-eyed assessment of what's real, you know? And I think that's, uh, and that's what, what sort of Minerva couldn't face, being sort of told like, you're not as good as you think you are. We really want to touch on the story of Tiresias as mm. well, because it's, it's an interesting one. So Juno and Jove both ask Tiresias and he'd spent time in both male and female bodies who had the more pleasurable sexual experience. Why do you personally think that Juno was so mad at Tiresias for declaring that women get more pleasure from sex than men? This is a really tricky question. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, okay. I mean, I think that it's, I think that it's, I was, I'm trying to sort of like put myself back into what I was thinking about when I was, when I was writing this story. And I was thinking about this sort of gut sense that when it's right, when it's when it's all like the best it can be that women take more pleasure in sex there's sort of this intuitive <laughs> sense that is you know again whatever who knows my own brain this is you know sort of what 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 comes up for me but that that first part of it when it's best is a very enormous and like important part of that situation and it's sort of to say like a oh, women like sex more those best times are, I think, rarer, you know, because the sort of the complications, the the risks, the 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 consequences for women are are greater, you know, violence, pregnancy, uh, these sort of life altering situations, and so to just sort of sort of blithely say mm, it's women, I think, is in some ways I can I'm you know again trying to insert myself into into Juno sort of saying like oh you you in saying so you disregard how complicated it is and the consequences and in doing so you 
perpetuate this idea that 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 women are are sex crazed, that they're 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 sort of constantly desirous uh, and feed into this sort of you know this kind of male fantasy that that's what that's what women want. I mean, it's really it's really tricky. It's really tricky. Um, I think though mostly that it, that it sort of has to do. I think that Juno is angry. <laughs> Again, who knows? <laughs> uh, in the sense of like it's so much more complicated, you know, it's, it's like, it's an impossible question, you know. And what's so frustrating, and I kind of wanted to shake Tyrese's a little bit, because he knows this, mm. it's even like, totally, I didn't give her the proper answer, I said, oh, women, yeah, but he didn't give all the factors about when it's better, and it's mm-hmm. that bit that's left unsaid, and if he just said a little bit more, I feel Completely. like he wouldn't have he wouldn't have lost his sight. He wouldn't have been yeah. sucked. But <laughs> I guess she, because Juno had had such unpleasurable experiences mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Zeus and he is now running off with all these other women. Not that they want it most of the time, yeah. but she seems to not think about that. But because she's thinking about her horrible experiences with him and how she's not desired anymore, I guess that really hits hard for her. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. Uh, and it is, I mean, you know, like Therese sort of moving through Therese's thinking throughout it, like how, like, how do I answer this? I'm in this impossible situation. I've been asked this impossible question. I'm just one person, you know? Uh, mm. uh, and that sort of, you know, how, how do I speak to like the experiences of, of men or of women? I think he was screwed either way, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we have the story of of Canis and Canis says I didn't lose my virginity someone took it from me I mean why do you think in Greek myth that there is so much rape we're not just talking about violence towards women in general but rape specifically do you think it is a bit of a power move I mean I think that you know why you know I I guess it's sort of like why is there so much rape in in Greek mythology why is there so much rape, I think, across a lot of mythologies, across a lot of storytelling, uh, across, you know, uh, history in general. I, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a huge question. Uh, and in some ways, I feel, I feel ill-equipped to answer it. Um, you know, it's, it is, you know, about control, about power, about pos- possessing, you know, ownership, uh, you know, like, I think for for a long time women were seen as 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 objects to be owned um and not as sort of individual human beings um I think and to sort of say like my want takes precedent over anything that you want is a way of kind of um enforcing that in a, in a very uh you know, obvious way, you know, what I want supersedes anything that you might want or need. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, it's, 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 it's a tricky one. And I, again, I feel, I, I'm not sure I, I feel like I can, I can answer it. I don't know if I have theories about why it is beyond the way that this is, I don't know, like about how kind of men have sort of enacted control uh, over women for for a very long time I don't know this story does stand out I think because at the end of it Canis has asked what they would like and it's almost mm-hmm. a bit like why are you asking me what I want now mm-hmm. because five minutes ago what I wanted didn't matter yeah but now you're asking me what I want 
and I think the choice that Canis makes to become a man so this doesn't happen again is is quite a sort of worrying choice definitely uh yeah it's I mean because you know what is she saying like god like take me take me away from the situation that that would sort of allow this to happen like take me away from the position that I'm in that this would be my fate um you know let me exist as a man to avoid that yeah I mean it's I mean it's super troubling definitely and I think I don't know in some ways speaks to I mean, there's a lot of different reactions to to that sort of event in a person's life. I think, you know, in this way, I guess, sort of speaks to like an and a one one route to escape. I'm not sure. Moving from that kind of hard rape question, because I think it is it's probably something that none of us can really answer because it is inherent throughout everything. So a story I did enjoy was the story of Alcmena. Mm. So being the mother of Heracles, you made her a judgy, yummy mummy. Is she based on someone you know? <laughs> what made you um, What made you pick this for her story? Yeah. Um, so it, when I was writing, you know, I would sort of read the story, and I was going for these long runs, and would just kind of listen in my mind, sort of like, what What is this? What does this figure sound like? What? How do they want to tell their story? And that's how she kind of. Uh, arrived in my mind and I think yeah I mean I, I I mean I certainly sort of like know people in this mode what was surprising for me writing that story was I I felt my own kind of judgment and like dismissiveness and kind of um not I mean disgust is sort of overstating it but like it was sort of this almost like I don't know not mean-spirited exactly but like a sort of a, like making fun of this kind of type uh, a little bit I found though at the by the end as I kept going like I had real sympathy you know that I was really this kind of like wow this would be this would be <laughs> like that she's very lonely you know she's very she's very isolated she's got this she's got this thing happening in her body she's got this giant Herculean baby growing inside her and and she's really alone in it um and so what started is just kind of like dismissive and like yeah fun making was sort of became like oh like having this having this great tenderness for her um but yeah I do definitely know I, I can definitely think of a, a person or two that kind of can sound a little like that if Zeus was going to disguise himself and have sex with me I would prefer <laughs> as my husband rather than some of the alternatives so she could not that what she had was good but yeah, she yeah. Could have had it worse. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like as some kind of animal. No, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> as my husband. Oh, you know, maybe. Yeah. It's not not so bad. <laughs> and while there is anger in the stories, there's also a lot of joy, pain, love, desire, and pride. And we really enjoyed the fact that you gave these women who we don't even have voices for sometimes just these well-rounded personalities and you didn't only make them likable you gave them dimension and nuance so thank you because this was such a pleasure to read that's really kind of you to say thank you so much I mean that's and that's that's a really enormous enormous compliment you might not have an answer to this it might be another hard question but how do you want your reader to feel when they read this book 
I mean, part of me thinks that that's not for me to say, you know, that that's that, you know, I, I wrote this thing and, and, and how a reader comes away from it, how a reader feels, you know, um, after reading any of it, you know, that's, that is, that is not, that's not, I don't know, that's not for me to sort of say, like, I, I don't necessarily write it or write anything with sort of, I mean, gosh, maybe this isn't fair to say, like, I was going to say, I don't write anything with the intent to make a reader feel a certain way. Um, but that's not, I mean, that's not exactly the case. Um, but I guess it's, it is sort of, I think that it is so individual and it's, you know, one person could read something and be thinking like, that's, 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 you know, this terrible, uh, you know, abomination of, of the, this story, um, or, you know, told in this disgusting way. And another person could say like, God, that was, that to me was beautiful. That made me feel sick. That made me feel, um, you know, empowered. Ah, and so I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I, it's for me, it's not for me to say, I think is the, the, the sort of, the, I'm not trying to dodge that question. I think that it is, it's so, it's, it's sort of so individual, this sort of reader's relationship to the book. And I think that there's, there's something sacred in that. And in, in some ways I'm removed. It's like the text is there, the stories are there. And it's the relationship between the stories and the reader, um, which I, I don't know, I find as a sacred, a sacred relationship. Well, I think we've definitely told you how we felt while we were reading it. And it's, and it's been, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so kind to hear really. Like it's, it's, uh, I'm so grateful for such generous and close reads of the book. Thank you. One of our new favorite things to do, we've done this with an author before with Greek mythology and it's something we will be doing again. So shag, marry, kill. (laughs) We love this game, (laughs) but we're going to make it on theme for wake siren so your choices are zeus apollo <laughs> and polyphemus oh wow oh god oh god <laughs> we've deliberately okay. picked the awful men <laughs> you've yeah. deliberately picked the awful man and to me apollo is not that awful like yeah i do love I mean, him so he's not that good <laughs> no i know but oh god okay oh man um let's see I think that I would shoot gosh I really love how seriously people take this question (laughs) yeah I mean I'm really thinking about it um okay this is gonna be okay kill Zeus marry Apollo shag Polyphemus in a completely bizarre uh (laughs) see that's what I would do yeah awesome okay I think that's yeah I think that's an acceptable answer Polyphemus, I think, you know, with just having, being kind of monstrous, I think might actually be a, a great lover. Um, who knows? <laughs> I think for my own safety, I just wouldn't want to shag Zeus. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the consequences of Hera would just yeah. be not worth it. Yeah. And even if she wasn't around, he's not good marriage material. So yeah, you yeah. can't marry yeah. Zeus. <laughs> yeah, Zeus, I feel like that was, that was my first, like, Im- eliminate him, you know? Nina, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. This was such a pleasure. Thank you guys both so, so much. It was such a delight. What do you think, before we say (laughs) goodbye to you properly, but what do you think would make classics more accessible and inclusive? Or what do you think could help? I think that, 
let's, I mean, in, in, in a school setting, I think that addressing the fact that there is a lot of, a lot of violence, I think addressing being very open about the fact that there is a lot of sexual violence, a lot of violence, and sort of emphasizing that these stories are so sort of, as I said at the beginning, sort of so kind of relevant even now. Because I think one thing, I don't know, for me, I don't know if this was a case with you guys, if you were in school, when reading some of these stories, you know, there was no mention like, oh, hey, like there, you know, some of the stuff is so glossed over, like, oh, he attained her love or these sort of euphemistic ways where it's like, huh, this seems kind of like maybe something a little bit more than like attained her love is going on. And this, again, sort of to go back to what you're saying about second guessing, like, gosh, something feels amiss here. I don't quite know what it is. And so instead of it being glossed over, being very matter of fact about it. And I think that, you know, I think that there's, these stories have been retold and retold and retold thousands of times, you know, I mean, this is, you know, Wake Siren and projects like this are not new. I mean, this has been happening forever. And I think, you know, to make it more accessible, you know, sort of, I don't know, sort of looking at how, how, how similar these stories are to so many of the stories that we live and hear right, right um and how to do that I'm not sure but I think that you know sort of emphasizing that in the classroom as early as you can um and being real about about the violence yeah well there seems to be a resurgence of historical fiction in the past few years yourself with Wake Siren we've got other people retelling other myths Mm. do you think do you think this helps make classics more accessible to wider audiences because they're told in different voices yeah I do I mean I think that you know that you can again I think that it can be this sort of this reminder of of again even when you think like oh I I didn't know that I knew this story this is all familiar to me or some of these are familiar and I didn't even know that they were familiar um so it's that way where it sort of it is like it becomes it becomes more accessible and it in like you know Maybe the hope is that it sort of, I, I'm, always, I'm always pleased if someone says, oh, it, it made me go to the actual Ovid. It made me turn to the metamorphosis. You know, that's always, that feels great to me, you know, to say like, okay, yeah, or to read, to read, to sort of, you know, read one of these interpretations and then say, yeah. And then I, and then I, and then I went to Virgil and then I went to Homer and to find the sort of vitality and, and, and sort of mm, relevance in them anew. So, yeah, I think, I think it can be a good either, compliment or introduction or reintroduction to these these texts well if someone is completely new to classics for example Mm. which would you recommend would you recommend starting with one of the newer versions easing in I mean I would honestly sort of recommend I don't know if I had a a mythology book when I was a kid it was the Dallaire's book of Greek myths I don't know if if you guys are familiar with this big yellow spine um, and I think in some ways just starting, starting with almost, I mean, not this is, I mean, almost a, a children's book of it. Um, and beyond that, I don't know, like, I think that to me, I don't know, I do think that it's that like, if you can start with the Odyssey, you know, I mean, I think that start, start with the sort of original texts, um, get as far as you can, and then, and then dip in and see how other people have sort of interpreted it. Um, but I think there is value in sort of saying what came to, to seeing what came first. And I think the Odyssey is just such an incredible adventure story that it can be, that can be a cool gateway. I don't know. How do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? When we finish recording, I'll show you 
what was my gateway into classics oh excellent because I still have it and it's a it's a version of the Odyssey and I still have it yeah I yeah I have a myths and legends book I don't Mm -hmm. know maybe see for some people the Odyssey might be a bit hard going straight off not my version (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, I think there's a lot around at the moment that could be starter point like like for example Wake Siren and then (laughs) You know, I picked up Wake Siren already. I've already got Metamorphoses, but I still went back and I was like, yeah. oh, I'll read the Daphne story. Yeah. Like, and that's cool. I mean, it is, it's a way to sort of say, I think, I don't know. I hope to a way to sort of say like, all right, there's this kind of like original version, but even, I mean, even Ovid was t- retelling the Greek myths, you know? So it's like, it's, 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 it's this kind of ever evolving mode of storytelling. And I think that, you know, if, if, I don't know, again, the hope sort of being like, oh, I, I can take this story and tell it the way I want to, you know, to sort of say like, this is, no one owns this. Like I can, I can take, I can tell my own version. What other projects do you have coming up? Do you think you would ever rewrite other myths? Yeah. I mean, I've thought about it. I, it's at the moment, I don't have plans to rewrite any myths. Um, I, I, I just got a note from someone who's reading Wake Siren who asked if I would do <laughs> the women in the Bible, which <laughs> I was like, oh, geez. Um, right now, I'm sort of deep, deep in a research project for a book I've been doing sort of archival research for the last couple of years, which I've never done before. And I'm keeping that project sort of close to my chest at the moment. Um, but that's been a real pleasure. It feels like a treasure hunt to be in the archives looking through these, these materials. Um, and at some point right now, I've just been, it's just been sort of accumulating into this mountain. And at some point I need to take out the chisel and start giving it a shape. Um, but I haven't done that yet. Um, and uh, I have another book coming out next fall. Uh, it's a pair to um, this, the, the summer solstice essay I mentioned at the beginning, um, this is a, an essay about the winter solstice. So these will be a pair um, and that book will be out in November. And then also, you know, just sort of shorter pieces here and there. Um, but those are sort of the, the main things that I've got cooking right now. And where can people find you online and support you and follow you and see your upcoming projects? Sure. Um, everything is just sort of, it's, it's Twitter and Instagram. It's just at Nina McLaughlin. And with, I, you know, I still actually keep sort of a, a Tumblr bot blog and that's uh, Carpentrix. Um, and those are the main, the main ways. Uh, I have a website. Again, it's just ninamclaughlin.com. And those are all those are all the sort of social media forces. We'll put that information in our episode description so that people Great. can find you and follow you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Nina. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast for more episodes. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Check out our website at www demythpod.co.uk. She's been Lauren, I've been Charlotte, and today we've been joined by Nina McLaughlin.